is in the book of Jude. And um, verse 3. Yeah, nobody needed to hear all that springtime Alaska foolishness. In verse 3, the Bible says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. In this lesson on the church, we're in a, in a section where we're looking at some identifying marks of what we could say is a New Testament church, a good church. And the first one we looked at uh, many weeks ago is that the Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice, and the Bereans there, it tells us in Acts 17, and the, and the brethren immediately sent Paul away, Paul and Silas by night, unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God, that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. And so they were commendable, to search the scripture daily and make sure that what you were being taught uh, was biblical. And then congregational government, and we took a, a lengthy approach to this and showed you that when Jesus said, all power is gonna be in heaven and earth, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things, what so I commanded you, and the fact that many times we see that the saying, the decision pleased the whole multitude, that a New Testament church ought to uh, have a congregational government. And so when we see the practice of R Roman Catholics and how that the decisions come down from the Vatican, they speak ex cathedra, which means out of the throne, that the Pope speaks for God, and he determines what's right or wrong, we just immediately could see that that's not biblical. Two biblical ordinances, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we talked about those and how, uh, what they represented, what they were for, that they didn't have saving qualities, that, uh, that they were ceremonies that pointed out the death and burial and Jesus, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And so the fourth mark that we've come to today, and I think that instead of just rushing through this, we're going to look up these verses and talk about them briefly, though we need to go through uh, this not real slow, but you're going to hear sometimes in the study of Christianity that the term essentials, uh, Bible essentials, 
and that and, and when they do Bible essentials, they'll just you know list a number of of doctrines that they think are important and essential. And I think that uh, it's justifiable to say that uh, there are some doctrines in the Bible that are more outstanding uh, than other uh, doctrines. But when he said that to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, and when Paul tells us to teach the whole counsel of God, there's nothing within the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, uh, when the New Testament age, or even in the Old Testament for that matter, but there's nothing in the Bible that's not essential. It, the Lord wouldn't have put it in there if it wasn't important. And so there can be things learned from it. But there are some things that kind of, as I said, stand out more than others. And the first one that he mentions here, a church that, a church that uh, is, is Bible, a church that is biblical, they're going to believe in, in the inspiration, inspiration of uh, the Bible. And well, just to look, note two verses on that, if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so a clear statement is made here in the Bible, in this book that God used Timothy to write, or Paul to write to Timothy, that we have a word from God that is sound. That is, that the, the word from God is not just man's opinion. It's not the words of Paul, but it's the words that God spoke using Paul to record them. And so that this book's author is not uh, men that walk this earth. They were simply the instrument that God used, but the, the word of God is inspired. Now, is that important? That, does that really matter? That there's lots of people that talk about Peter's writing, and John's writing, and Paul's writing, and, and, and how Paul viewed things maybe in a different angle than the others. And so if we're not careful, the word of God can be put down on a basis where we become 
judges of the Word of God instead of the Word of God judging us. And that the authority doesn't lie in how I interpret it, but in what it says. And so, the faithfulness to Bible doctrine, he, we start out right at the beginning here saying that, that we have the Word of God and it's authoritative. Now the next question is, I mean, nobody, I mean, a lot of people can accept the fact that the scriptures are inspired, that God moved men, uh, men were moved along by the Holy Ghost. It, it was the same word as used of the wind blowing the ship, that the God just kind of moved them along. And people will understand that God's hand was in that, and God even used men that were like uh, pencils in his hand. But uh, the issue is, do we still have it, it, it in its entirety? Do we still have the Bible in its clarity? Do we have the, the Bible as it was written? It hasn't, you know, over, after all, we live in here in 2022 and Jesus was in the first century and the New Testament was written up through the first century, hasn't it changed? You know, it's went through many hands. Well, if you go over to Psalms chapter 12, Psalms chapter 12, And verse 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, this is a promise of God concerning his word. And... Uh, and people will say, okay, well, this is kind of circular reasoning because you're using the Bible to prove the Bible. Well, there's, there's a great study done on, on proving that uh, the preservation of God's word and that what was written in the first century in the Old Testament has been preserved and it's accurate. But... Uh, Nevertheless, and that can, you can take a good deal of time proving that. But nevertheless, God makes a very clear statement here. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And so this, this book is promised, the words of God, here in Psalms, and surely the ones before that that were written and the ones after that, but he says that they're purified seven times. They put it through the smelter to get out all the dross. And then he preserved them. For how long? Well, they're preserved for the generation that David was in and, the, and generations forever. And so, uh, though time could be taken to teach on the preservation of God's word and comparing manuscripts and seeing how God, you know, kept certain manuscripts pure and, uh, and all that's a great study. But uh, 
I start out with a foundation that I believe that this is God's book. And that he wrote it. And what he says here is true. And so I don't need to necessarily base my faith upon uh, critics of the Bible or students that study the, the events of recording the Bible. But God has promised me a book that is pure. And so one of the, when we're talking about the fourth characteristics of uh, of a good New Testament church, that it's faithful to Bible doctrine. You can't be faithful to Bible doctrine if you don't have a faithful document. And we have a faithful document. And so when you're looking around at churches, it's important what they believe about the Bible. Is it the Word of God or does it contain the Word of God? This Bible maintains that it is the Word of God, and it doesn't just contain the Word of God. Years ago, I was witnessing when I was doing mission work and going, and this somehow, uh, I don't know if it was on the street or at a door or in a meeting, but he, this guy told me that he only believes the red letters of the Bible. Well, you better have a red letter Bible, first of all. But, but there's much more to the Bible than just what Jesus spoke. And Jesus made that very plain himself. And so, number one, uh, you know, one of the things that we look at in this idea of faithfulness to God's word is uh, the inspiration of the scripture. Now, Secondly, is uh, that that God that God is a Trinity. The recognition of only one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 John. And 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. For there are three that bear <coughs> record in heaven, the Father, the Word, we know that John is writing, and he says in John, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, that the Word dwelt among us. And so the Word would be Jesus Christ, and, and then and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. We know that, that when Jesus was baptized, the, that the Father said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit of God as a dove came and rested on his shoulder, and Jesus is there uh, being baptized. So this idea about being three people, uh, three persons in one Godhead, and that even we go back to Genesis and see the use of the, 
the term that's defined God, Elohim. That it's a plural, plural noun and a uniplural noun. And that we find uh, God speaking, we find the Spirit of God over the water, and we find the plurality there in the Old Testament. But you'll find that there's, uh, there's churches out there. You, most of you have been just raised in, uh, uh, around Baptist doctrine, but there's those that actually I uh, think it's <laughs> very unscriptural and sinful uh, to claim that there's three persons in the Godhead. Uh, there's, uh, they're called, there's a movement among the Pentecostals called Jesus only. That Jesus is the Father. That Jesus is the Spirit. That Jesus is the Son. And uh, that there's not three personalities. So, uh, what's the point? Uh, well, there's different uh, jobs that the Father has and the Spirit has and the Son have but they're still three in one. So if you were, let's just act like we're going to a church and we're trying to determine as we move to a new place, let's say we're Brother Hanson and we've moved to, to um, Idaho. And I don't know if you know, but Idaho is second only to Utah in the nation for Mormons. And so there's going to be some some things to watch out for. And of course, Brother Hans is not going to go to a Mormon church, but he's trying to find the, the best that he can. And so what we believe about the Godhead, it could be fleshed out more and show even further why it's important. All right. Uh, the third thing that we ought to understand is that uh, man is a sinner. Uh, and because of that, he's a fallen creature. Look over in Romans chapter Romans chapter 5. You have to understand that the word many, it doesn't mean a certain amount. But it says here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, for as many... For as by one man, for as by one man sin's disobedience, many were made sin, sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Uh, scoop back up to uh, verse 12. Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And then in chapter 3 and verse 23, it tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And how in Jeremiah 17, 9, 
I think the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so this understanding that man is a sinner, a sinner that is desperately a sinner, that the wages of sin is death, that uh, uh, we're depraved, is important when you're looking at a church. Now let me kind of give you an example here. Uh, I was talking to, uh, I believe it was uh, Bethel Baptist Church over there off of Farmer's Loop, and uh, I said, well, we're talking about mission work, and I said, uh, I was asking him, I don't know how we got into this, I don't know why I go around picking fights, I don't think I was, but I was trying to find out what they believed. I said, so what happens if a person in this world is born into a country, Africa or Asia or wherever, and they live and die never having heard the gospel? Will they go to heaven or hell? And he said, uh, well, they'll go to heaven. They never had an opportunity to be saved. Well, the Bible says we're all sinners. And, uh, and there's a lot to be, uh, have that fleshed out. But, but uh, <laughs> I'm probably digging more holes than I'm filling in this morning. Uh, is a Hottentot in Africa, I don't know what the, that's what the old term is, has never heard the gospel. Will he be saved? Well, let me ask you first of all, is he without light? You say no? Okay, what, what, how, why do you say that? Nobody's preached to him. Okay, and so there is the light of creation that they can know there's a God. And it, and it says that even in that Psalms 19, it, it talks about how they're without an excuse, kind of. And, huh? Yeah, Romans 1.20, is that the conscience? Yeah, not only does a man have uh, light in, the, in creation, but also Romans 1.20 says that his conscience accusing him or excusing him that, that, that God has given every man a conscience for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead and then in chapter 2 and verse 14 I believe for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law they having not the law are law unto themselves which show the work of God written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And so God uses creation as a light to draw men. God uses a conscience to draw men. And then that surely is not going to save them. But the Bible, this is, uh, I believe, and I think that you can run it out, 
uh, from the, the Bible when you see that men like Cornelius and others, but when a guy is searching, when God is drawing and he's responding, God will send a man to preach the gospel. And so it's a basic understanding. And see, <laughs> and see uh, I've often... I've often hoped, not necessarily hoped, I've often thought that it would be so um, I don't searching for the word so um, easy, not necessarily easy, but so beneficial, so uh, so um, I can't find a word, but so. It would make me so much at, more at ease if I knew that the people who have never heard the gospel are going to go to heaven. Because I don't have to give to missions anymore. In fact, for me to give to missions would, would condemn them because they'd hear the gospel. But that's not the case. People are condemned not because they've not heard. People are condemned because they're sinners. And they need the gospel. And there may be a hot and tot or, or a person like them in this world, like in uh, the Middle East, like among the Arabic people that need the gospel and they want to know the gospel and they're searching for the gospel. There's a unique phenomenon going on among the Arabs, and uh, I don't necessarily like it because sometimes it doesn't necessarily go along with my theology. But uh, it's been evident on numerous occasions that God somehow is dealing and drawing the Arabs and some special ways to get them to where they can hear the gospel. And uh, God's going to be faithful. There's never been a seeking sinner that's not wound up finding a seeking God. He came into the world both to seek and to save that which is lost. And so, man is a sinner, that he doesn't take on sinful qualities. He comes into this world in sin, his mother having conceived him. Okay, another thing <laughs> that we should look forward to, and these are kind of just all over the page, that... that that there's a belief that believers, I before E except after C, believers, uh, how does it word it here? That believers are, are headed for glory and God's presence.
And let's look over in First Thessalonians. Pastor's been here in a number of months past or weeks past. Sixteen and seventeen of chapter four of First Thessalonians. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's an understanding. come to in the Bible and a church that you're contemplating attending should surely hold to the truth that this the Bible teaches and that is for God's children there's coming a glorious day and he says that we shall ever be at the Lord remember when the Christ was here and the disciples were beginning to gradually get pounded into their thick brains that he was going to die and he was going to leave. He confronted them and he said, let not your heart be troubled. Anybody's heart been troubled lately? <laughs> let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, if this isn't true, I'd have told you it wasn't true. If it was not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, ye may be also. There's this idea even in buildings that have a sign that has the word church on the outside of it, that uh, we're all going to the same place. We're all on the same different road, different ways, but we're all going to heaven. But the Bible only promises eternal blessings uh, for those that are saved. But it also declares that there's going to be damnation for those that are lost. In Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, and whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That there is a place that's prepared for punishment. And, uh, and people are going to go there. Let me just give you a little uh, rabbit trail to chase here. 
study it out yourself. It's going to require a little study. But when it says their, their names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're going to find out in other places it says that their name was blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, what is it? Written in or blotted out? Well, if it's blotted out, it's no longer written in. But the point is this, that uh, Jesus Christ died for every man, woman, boy, and girl. He died for every person born into this world. And their name was written in the book. They had an opportunity to be saved. But when they reject it, it's going to be blotted out. And so that kind of is troubling for the Calvinist, uh, but nevertheless, you're going to have to deal with blotted out. Why was it blotted out? How was it blotted out? Well, it was blotted out after final rejection. Okay, flip the page. We're rapidly moving on here. I might get through the first <laughs> paragraph. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, one person with two natures. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, this, this should be without any discussion. It should be without any questioning. This should be without any controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery? God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That it shouldn't be a controversy is absolutely uh, A great, a great uh, mystery, but not a controversy. That God became a man. That God became a man and received up into the glory. And then, um, right, that God equals man. And then five, six.
Christ is the only Savior. He's the only Redeemer of mankind. Acts chapter 4, many verses we could read, but let's go to Acts chapter 4. this whole section here in Acts chapter 4 um, I mean uh, in, the, in your little handout that we should believe that he's the only redeemer of mankind so there is salvation and no other name Acts 4.12 that the death and blood of Christ are the complete and sufficient payment for sins of the world that the Lord Jesus having died for our sins was buried and rose again bodily the third day and then ascended to heaven to the right hand of God the Father. The salvation is based only on the work of the Son of God on the cross, not on any work, religious ritual, or any other act of goodness wherein mankind, within mankind, that once one is born again, he's eternally saved, secured, and irrevocably changed. And that is salvation is received through the repented faith alone. And so we look here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name. And so we have two powerful negatives here. Neither and none other. Neither salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And you see back up in verse 10 that he's talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That he's the only source of salvation. The only source. That he's the payment for sin. In Romans chapter uh, 5 and verse 8. Romans 5 and 8. But God commendeth his love towards us, and while we yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, let me uh, slow down here a little bit. He says here, we shall be saved by his life. But up above here, he says, we're reconciled by his death. Reconciled by his death, but saved by his life. Well, which is it? Are we saved by his death or saved by his life? What's he talking about? How do we get saved? Is it by the death of Christ or is it by the life of Christ? We shall be saved by his life. He 
you guys. Are, this is a very exciting lesson today, so I expect you to be on, your, on, on the edge of your seats. Both? Oh, well, let's flesh that out. Okay, and what's, what's the Lord doing today? Just standing there, standing by the right hand of the Father, just standing there, just, just, just hanging out, making intercession. Yep, Humphrey messed up today, but I paid for those sins. And so, the proof of the, the resurrection means we have a living Savior. And that salvation is not just a point in time, but salvation is uh, continual. I've been, I've not been, I've started some lessons where I want to, this is probably where our lesson closes here. I want to try to start teaching where the Bible says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. I went through the Gospels and I'm trying to pull out every command that the Lord has and it's very interesting. The very first command that Jesus commanded was repent and believe the gospel. But the re term repent is not only a command, but it's a command in the present tense, which means I just didn't repent when I was 13 years old and that saved me. That was the point of my salvation. But God gave me a heart of repentance. And as I yield to that, and I know that I've sinned against him, not losing my salvation, but I sinned against my relationship with him, I continue. So when we talk about repentance, it's not just a one-time event, but it's a continual thing that's happened in my heart that I want to be pleasing to him. And so, uh, let me... Uh, Oh, I've got five minutes. I might be able to kind of hurry through this. The blood, the blood, the blood. Uh, the Lord Jesus, having died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And the salvation is based upon the work of the Son of the Cross. Okay, we know salvation is not by works. We're become a new creature. Old things have passed away. But let's... Uh, Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's just talk uh, just a little bit here. Why did Jesus die? Okay, now don't all get excited here. Why did he die? Huh? You guys walked on top of each other. I just said there's no other way. No other way? Okay. No other way for what? No other way. To pay for sin. 
Huh? What? Oh, that says that? What's it, what's it say? All right. Any other reason? Huh? Reconcile? Okay. What do we mean by that? Huh? Okay, he took our place as a reconciler. But what? He's our substitute. Substitute for reconciliation, but uh, so what do we mean by reconciliation? We're separated. Okay, so the re- reconciliation would mean that there's a, there's a divide between man and God. And somehow he reconciles that. Okay. Well, what's he reconciling? What's the, what's the problem? Sin, right? Okay. I'm trying. I'm not trying to hang you, as most people think. <laughs> what's it say in John chapter three and verse thirty-six? Okay, so here's man. Here's God. And hanging over man is the wrath of God. This loving God who so loved the world has hanging over my head the wrath of God and it's about to drop. The death of Jesus Christ, 1 John 2, 2 says, and this is a propitiation, and he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means a sacrifice that appeases, that satisfies the wrath of God. We are saved. See, I think sometimes we get this idea, we're saved from our sinful lifestyle. Yeah, we become a new creature. We're saved to walk in newness of life. Yes, we're saved to walk in newness of life. But what I needed to be saved from is that this is about to fall on my head. And I realize it's about to fall on my head justly that I deserve the wrath of God. And when you get over the Isaiah uh, chapters that people that are uh, nominal Christians and don't, it says, it, it said this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. 
What a horrible God. It pleased the Lord to beat him up. It pleased the Lord to see the travail of his soul and that satisfied him. It pleased the Lord that his son would satisfy his wrath so God could be just and forgiving me. My forgiveness is not just until the payment for my sin was taken care of. And so we're saved from the wrath of God. And, and when, we're, when we're witnessing, I think because, because many of the uh, methods or programs and trying to bring people to the Lord, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Why wouldn't you want to receive him as your savior? Well, that's only part of the, that's only part of the equation. The wrath of sin abides upon you. The wrath of God abides upon you because of your sin. And that needs to be dealt with. There's no, there's no, nothing that shakes, you know. When you say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, well, you know what? I just bought a four-wheeler and a camper and a new rifle, a new fishing pole, a new television set. I got a new house. I got a new job. I'm making buckos of money. Uh, my plan's pretty good. <laughs> uh, no, it's not good if uh, God's wrath is hanging over you and, and it's going to fall on you. So don't ever leave out the wrath of God in your witnessing because it makes no sense if you do. All right, that's enough to chew on for today. You're dismissed.